So, if you don't mind, just repeat the last kind of paragraph that you gave. Yeah. By the way, welcome. I'm glad to meet you. Yeah. Glad to see you. How do you say your name? Uh, uh, it's Odna. It's kind of like if you say odd name without the M at the end. So just odd name, Odna. Uh, That's I it. see A A D A G here. A Andy. Oh A yeah, that must be like. That must be some weird um, old Skype name that I have. I haven't used Skype in a long time, so I think that I don't know, really know what's there. But my name is Obma. Anyway. Obma. Close uh, enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of used to this, so. But yeah, you asked me to repeat the last uh, paragraph because. Yeah, you can start with I was raised as atheist. Yes, uh, and that was as a response to you saying that morals always uh, uh, is mundane and that it requires some sort of punishment. And I imagine that you reward system, right? Yes, and I imagine when you say that that this is uh, judging from some of the talks that I've heard you uh, make before that this is some sort of magical system, and uh, the reason why. Um, and for me, although I understand where you're coming from with that, I think having uh, been raised by atheist parents and who still instilled some sort of moral in me, there was never that sort of, at least like magical thinking about uh, a heaven realm or anything like that. And moral seemed to work just fine without it. All right. Well, one of the things, though, about the, the, the heavenly world is that it's something that you don't have right now. It's the promise of something in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically, any punishment reward system that has promise of reward in the future is magical thinking. Never mind how long it takes. Mm. That if you have a system of cause and effect, then when this happens, the cause the effect happens fairly quickly, Ooh. depending upon the situation and how many tiny little cause effects there are in there. Ah, <sighs> oh. okay, I think I lost, I lost you for a moment, yeah. Mm -hmm. You were saying... Um, Punishment reward system, always magical thinking, uh, doesn't matter how long into the future it is. Into the future it is. Yes, yeah. But we do have a system that the Buddha works with, that the scientists work with, and that is the cause effect that's, that's quite immediate. In other words, mm -hmm. if you pull the trigger on a gun, the gun goes off fairly quickly. There have been some guns manufactured that had a timer in it so that by the time that you pulled I think it was uh, get smart had a gun like that you pull the trigger and the gun doesn't go off until 10 seconds and then in 10 seconds the cause and effect the clock rotates out and now the gun fires mm. okay mm. why would that be is because uh, uh, the guy you give the guy your gun he pulls the trigger on you he sees it it doesn't work he sets it down then you pick it up or uh, just leave it there and it's going to go off. <laughs> but it was still cause-effect relationships that was built into the gun. 
and that there was many of them. You pull the trigger, that releases a mechanism. The spring then tension will pull the hammer forward, which hits the firing pin. The firing pin will hit the, uh, uh, the cap, the little tiny fuse. That fuse gets hot, heating up the, um, uh, the gunpowder. The gunpowder then has already a concoction mixed in it so that it's got uh, flammables and oxygen. That burns very quickly, creating gas, which then pulls, pushes the bullet out the barrel. Look how many little cause effect, cause effect, cause effects there was in that whole sequence, mm -hmm. right? Magical thinking is, is that when we can't actually connect the cause and the effect. Mm -hmm. And so because we can't actually uh, see the cause and effect relationship, we invent something. Mm. And that, yeah. that invention <clears throat> then is the magic. Now, let's go to some statistics for a moment in the United States, because these are very, very well-known statistics and something that can be easily understood. And these statistics that we're talking about is county by county. Mm -hmm. County by county statistics of various places in the United States, so that if the county is in fact uh, primarily or mostly atheist, then they have these kind of figures for crime and uh, um, use of illicit drugs, alcoholism, domestic violence. Mm. And then in other counties, you'll have Christians, primarily Christians, and they will have statistics also of those things. Mm -hmm. And what these statistics show is, is that atheists are generally better behaved than Christians. Yeah. Why Good is enough. that? Actually, because what's built into Christianity is the wrong view that, oh, yes, we know all about sin, but if you mm -hmm. get Jesus to forgive you, then you can get away with it anyway. Fair enough. Atheists, I see that point. And that's magical thinking, that they can get away with it. Mm. So where the atheists are raised, that you can't really get away with it, because by this point in time, we've already got the man. Hmm. And the man will come if I call him because I don't like how you're behaving. Still so, cause and effect, though, but, uh, but I, I see really your point. Is, but here it really is cause and effect. Yes. Okay, to where in the other world there is more magical thinking. So in this regard, then, bad behavior is caused by magical thinking to where the good behavior of the atheist is caused because he's looking at things in a more wholesome, realistic way rather than magically. Well, you get no, um, no argument from me on that, for All sure. Right. But uh, um, it do did seem a little bit from, uh, from what I've heard you say before that, uh, that you uh, would say, sorry about the stuttering here, that you would say that uh, morals altogether is someone that's on the noble path should kind of put away almost, or no. Uh, no. no. No, first off, the quality of putting away has time-oriented, the mm. future, the past and the future. 
to where the real teachings of the Buddha have to do with what's happening right now. Your right effort is to remove right now the unwholesome thoughts in the mind. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, Western mentality is all about future-oriented. You do this, and then later you will get the reward for it. But the correct practice of the Dhamma is, is that if you do this, you'll get the reward immediately, right now. Hmm. And this is what the whole show is all about, is the cause and effect that we can control, rather than hoping that the cause and effect is uh, relationships is going to give me what I want, which is the magical thinking. And it's always future-oriented. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, an example of what we're talking about that I'm thinking about now is, is that uh, in the... Wikipedia article about Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Do you know Bhikkhu Buddhadasa? Have you ever heard of his name before? No, not really. Okay. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is uh, my teacher in Thailand, and he's quite, oh, yes. quite well known in, in Thailand. Uh, and that in this article in the Wikipedia, they quote Bhikkhu Bodhi as saying that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa will destroy Buddhism. Okay, Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the rebirthers, and he's saying that if you stop teaching rebirth, then the kids who learn about Buddhism will not have any foundation. Hmm. If we can't teach rebirth, then we can't teach morality. Hmm. And so the 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 idea that uh, in magical thinking is is that people who think magically think that magic has to be taught because the kids can see right through it. Hmm. If, if, you te- if you teach them that you can't get away with it, then the kids will immediately say, oh yes, I can get away with it. Hmm. And so now the authorities are left with constructing systems to make sure that the kids can't get away with it. And so if we're dealing with it in a reality way, then that means that we hire thugs called cops Mm-hmm. to enforce our rules and so yes. anybody who breaks the rules we call the cops and the cops come in and uh, offer a punishment reward system mm. but in the very very early days cops didn't exist and that whatever army there was was still just a vigilante army and that there was no real authority this is where the, the whole idea of magical thinking came from. And then, in fact, the best evidence is, is that in about 800 B.C. was when this stuff came up. This was at a time when the Brahmins were beginning to lose their power. Mm. And so they invented a system that they says, okay, well, we are the priest here. You can't be priest. And we are the ones who do all the priestly work, and we charge some pretty high fees for it including all of your land. If Hmm. you want to be buried by the Ganges and get us to do a ceremony, your family is going to have to give us your inheritance because we Hmm. want your land. And then they say, well, why should we give you the land to to have a ceremony? We can just have the ceremony on on our own. And the Brahmins will say, oh, no, it don't work like that. You have to have our ceremony. And uh, we are Brahmins. And we were Brahmins because we were born Brahmin. Hmm. 
And you're not a Brahmin because you weren't born Brahmin. Therefore, you cannot do Brahmin ceremonies. Only Brahmins can do <clears throat> Brahmin ceremonies. Well, why was I born Brahmin and you weren't? That's because, here it goes now, I was good in the past. And my reward for having been good in the past is I was born Brahmin in this life. And you were not so good in the past, and therefore you were not born Brahman. This is where that whole idea then of the law of Kama comes from. It came as a power play by the Brahmins. And since that time, the belief system in rebirth and reincarnation has been strong because it's a delicious belief. Why is it delicious? It's because it kind of promises that you can have life after death. The death really won't get you. Hmm. Well, everyone has a natural instinct called a self-preservation instinct, and that self-preservation instinct, the job of it is to keep you alive. Which means when you die, you're going against that um, uh, instinct, and more to the point, when you think about dying, then that instinct will kick right in and we have fear so this is called the fear of death and that the promise of everlasting life is quite delicious for those who have fear of death yeah it's a promise of out into the future okay but the the buddhist teaching about the right here now is oh if you feel afraid right now don't try to fix something off into the future Work on what's going on right now, because in fact, you're not, there's no danger right now. Your room is not crawling with alligators. You don't have a snake crawling up your leg. Then in fact, you are safe. Why should you feel like you're not safe? Okay, so that kind of brings me into like more of this stuff, because all of what you've said now, I find very reasonable. Uh, I guess there are things that I could kind of pick on, but it's not really <laughs> what, uh, what I'm after. I, I think I agree with all of that. But uh, <clears throat> in terms of like being in danger, like I, I live in Berlin and okay. uh, and here, like I, I'm constantly reminded of, say, the the atrocities that happened here uh, during the Second well, World War. Well, well, first off, you're not constantly reminded. You're oh, no. occasionally reminded. Yeah, yes. Fair enough. Uh, if, uh, and uh, although this... And when you do remind, oftentimes you remind yourself without any triggers at all. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Like right now, for instance, there is no Berlin in that room. That room is free of Berlin right now. This is true. This is true. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with you with that. Where I find it difficult to see, or like, where I, where I would want you to unpack it a little more is say, for instance, you say that, uh, okay, so right now, if you're scared, there's no snake in the room, so there's really no reason to be scared. But say, uh, if you were uh, a Jew in Berlin in the end of the 30s, there might not be a Nazi in the room, but he would probably be coming for you and your family soon. Should you then not try to work out how to become safer? And wouldn't that necessarily have to... 
Well, in the sort of planet, in the story that you just told me, the SS hasn't come yet. The SS officer is not yet in the room. Yes. And And yet the fear is there of what will happen in the future. Suppose the possibility is, is that the Jew can be in his room afraid of the SS coming and the SS doesn't come. Oh, this sounds like very bad advice to me. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't it be better to say, uh, try to get out, try to plan for an escape? Yes. Okay. Plan to escape real dangers. Yeah but recognize real dangers as real dangers and mental dangers as mental dangers. Dealing with reality, if there really is danger, then you need to do something about it. And I could give you a whole lot of stuff about that. But very rarely do I teach to talk to students who are actually in danger right here in this present moment. Yes, back. Yeah. yeah. Is it, do you think it's the connection on your uh, end? Or? The connection looks good here. I was just looking at that. Yeah, I thought so here as well. But okay. Um, sorry about that if it's on my end. But um, yes. Okay, so the last thing I heard you say was to, the, um, to differentiate real dan- dangers and mental dangers. Right. Because yes. most of the time, the dangers are not real. Mm. Most of the time, the dangers are not real. When the dangers are real, we need to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And we also need to have the, the wisdom to know the difference between what's real and what's not real. Yes. But is it... Just to, to clarify this, do you see, so sometimes you see that dangers can be real, but in the future, meaning not, not yet real in the sense of real here and now, but worth planning to uh, not get into, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, do it's a little bit complicated and we're dealing with really really deep stuff but let me work with you on this a moment and that is is that okay so there you are in the house and the ss does come knock on the door mm-hmm. okay you can either see that ss officer as dangerous or not dangerous if you see him as dangerous he will pick up on your feeling of danger and he will act accordingly 
if he comes to the, because he's an expert at this. And if you, he comes to the door and you see that he's SS and you treat him like a, a comrade, like a friend, like a, a, a someone who is on your side and is not dangerous, then he will perceive you as not dangerous. Yeah. So it really has to do with with our attitude. It all has to do with our attitude about things. And in well, modern times, we don't have any SS officers. Normally, what we have is we have uh, we're out on the road and the police stop us. That's much more likely to happen. This is true, at least in my that's, life. And that's a real danger for many people. <laughs> And for some people, because they see it's a real danger, they'll act like they're in a state of danger. They'll become frustrated, they'll become agitated, they may in fact uh, uh, try to confront that cop or other things like that, rather than being fully cooperative with him. And it is possible for somebody in the United States to get shot and killed, simply because they're afraid. Hmm. where if you treat the officer like a, a, a kind human being, like you know him, and you give him everything that he is asking for, and you treat him very well, then the likelihood of it being dangerous is lessened. Yeah, this, uh, this does make sense to me. However, like in both the, the sense, the example of the uh, the Jews in Nazi Germany and the person in in the United States being stopped by an officer one could also see a coherent argument saying that maybe how they acted was not enough that there was like obviously in the Nazi Germany um, example a structural problem meaning that they were exterminating jews and in the uh, other example with the cop pulling you over in the states you could say that there would also be a structural problem less so but still of uh, racial tension mm -hmm. and i sometimes get the idea that you feel that uh, that side of the problem should just be left to others and that there's no real reason to try to um, let's say, work on a policy level or like for the example with, um, uh, with the person being stopped in the States or uh, stopping the Nazis by uh, basically a D-Day in, uh, in the other okay. example. Guess what, though? The Jews didn't stop the Nazis. No, but some people did. Yes. So which side are you on? Are you going to be the Nazi or, uh, excuse me, are you going to be the Jew that's being having his door banged on? Or are you going to be the, uh, the forces that are landing in France with your tanks getting ready to go into Germany? I think a lot of the Jews that were hiding didn't feel that they had an option at that point. I felt that, right. think that most I, of them were just trying to get out still in, alive. In a way, though, why are you dealing with something that happened 70 years ago when we've got much more fearful things to deal with right here, right now? 
Yeah, we could do like you do not have to prepare for the SS because right now there is no SS coming. Now, I think the reason why I uh, why I bring it up is um, is as a good example of where I right now in this moment find it difficult to um, to to take what you're saying as kind of the, the full truth. In my mind, when you're Part saying these the things... for that is because you've got a long-term frame of reference rather than in this moment. Okay, so in this moment, there are no cops at the door. This is true. Or in this moment, there is no SS, and yet you still are worried about SS. There no. been in SS for 20 years or 50 years, and you're still thinking about something that's not there. Uh, okay, this is not this is actually not how I see it. I am I'm I'm not well, saying this because I'm scared that, of the SS instead or of, <laughs> and, 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 and instead of trying to fit my stuff into what you already believe, please open up and allow something new to come in. Okay? Yes. So let's go to the point then that the SS is actually knocking on the door. Mm -hmm. And that we greet him happily. And he grabs us by the arm and puts handcuffs on us and take us anyway. Let's say you and I. When that, when that uh, SS officer is taking you out of there, how are you going to feel? As opposed to, do you would recognize that you do have a choice that even though you're being caught right now, you can still be okay. So far, so good. All he's got is my arm. Now, let us say all the way into the Auschwitz, you're still thinking that way, and here you have a whole room full of hundreds of Jews, all of them having their own personal pity party because they're afraid to die. You're going to die too. But right now, while you're awaiting your death, are you going to be miserable having a pity party? Oh, poor me, I'm going to, they took Joe, now they're taking Fred, they're going to take me next, and oh, poor me. Or are you going to say, so far, so good. So this moment is okay. I don't know what they're going to do to me, but I know that I can handle this moment. But you see, what you're doing here is that you're making a huge problem that doesn't exist and trying to get through with that. And I'm trying to get you back to this present moment right here with your own Skype with me and get you to get into a good state right now. Because if you can excellently get yourself into a good state right now, when you've got no pressures on you, then you're more than likely going to be able to maintain that good state when there is a little pressure. And yeah. then you can maintain a good state when you get a little bit more pressure because now you're developing a skill, the skill of being okay, the skill of being happy and, and uh, comfortable in this present moment. And then eventually there's going to be a good one. There's going to be a big one. You're going to get sick, maybe in the hospital. But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa says that's an excellent time to practice because <clears throat> I am not the body. The body is sick, but I'm okay. Here we are, all right. And then even a bigger one, the point of death. How are you going to handle that? 
How about three minutes before you die? You just got shot by an arrow. Here you are bleeding out. How are you going to handle your last three minutes of life? Are you going to handle it miserably? Oh, poor me. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, I'm going to die and I want to live. We may come up with things like, oh, I'll see you in hell when you talk to the guy who just shot you with the arrow. Or you can die happily. Your choice. But you're not going to be able to take that choice if you are overwhelmed by all of your bad feelings and grief and remorse and, and wanting to live and all of that. But if you start a meditation practice of getting yourself into a good state, then you can begin to handle life's difficulties in a good space. But the important point is, is that if you can handle life's difficulties while you're in a good space, they're not so difficult, are they? <clears throat> I have um, it's a lot of, lot of good stuff in there. And uh, I, I just feel that I, I really need to point out that uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation, talk, talking about SS officers and all. So that's, <laughs> that's not really my, my problem. But um, um, so, like, I guess what I'm getting at is not so much that this either living in Berlin or thinking about these things makes me scared or miserable. It's more in a thinking about is this like good, good rules for life sort of, sort of way. And that's where I think I'm Why not do you need rules? Uh, I don't need to call them, that's instead of calling it rules, because it's not necessarily what I mean, but uh, how do I think about moral conundrums in the moment? Not necessarily as uh, And why is it necessary for you to think about moral conundrums in the moment? To be completely honest, I kind of like it, and it makes me happy. <laughs> But there's also like uh, one could also say that there are that thinking about them would benefit me once they come up. You mentioned the the fear of death, and there would seem to be like being knowing how to have thought about uh, death and come to terms with it and being happy maybe in the face of it. Would also, be some sort of planning and something that you maybe not a moral conundrum, but still. Something that uh, that it's worthwhile thinking about, rules or not, sort of. I guess if that makes sense. I'm I'm actually on the word conundrum. Hmm. Because conundrum actually means doubt or insecurity or uh, a question <clears throat> about how things should be uncertainty yes and so thinking about moral conundrums means that you want to come to a resolution and when you come to the resolution then you find happiness so long as you're stuck in conundrum that's not necessarily so happy To be completely honest, I feel internally that uh, in all these cases, there is no real conundrum on my part. The real well, you the, use the word. <laughs> yes, yes, it is, I, and I use it because uh, I feel like 
the way I see it and the way you talk about it seem to be at all. So there, so that's why I uh, let's call it a dilemma then, or uh, or something all else. Right. But, so but that's I'm, the same thing. And the important point is, is that you are not in that moral conundrum or moral dilemma right now. That you have manufactured true. that in your mind. Oh yes. Oh yes. One hundred percent. Okay. There we go. That's the whole point. Is is that <laughs> look what you're manufacturing in your mind. Yes. Because a lot of manufactured stuff is uh, unsatisfying. It's unsatisfactory. It's mm. thinking about problems that need to be solved. And then we solve the problems, and we still don't feel any better. Yes. Okay. This so I we need to that. find a practice mm -hmm. that can get us out of those conundrums and get us into a state of satisfaction. Hmm. To become hmm. satisfied with this present moment. But what do you recommend? I would recommend right noble effort and the other factors of the Eightfold Noble Path. The right noble view is uh, to see how things really are because we investigate. To where most people don't have right noble view, they have an ordinary view, which means they take a viewpoint about how things ought to be rather than how they actually are. And when they talk about how things ought to be, they're mixing in rules that, that they've heard from other people, perhaps their parents or whatever like this. And uh, we're uh, inventing a world, and then we're comparing what we find in our own minds of reality and comparing it with that, rather than just letting whatever is be okay as it is. Hmm. We're trying to improve things, we're critical. We're critically minded. We're critical of the world. We were taught to be critical from, from about the age of four or five. That before that time, everything was nurturing. When a, when a brand new baby is born, mom does everything. Then in fact, you're very happy when the baby uh, takes his first dump. But if that baby grows just 10 years old and takes a dump right there on the floor, the parents are not going to be nurturing to him for taking the dump. They're going to be critical. Thou so, shalt not take dumps on the carpet. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. And so we spend much of our lives being uh, taught how to manage ourselves in this critical society by being critical. Critical of ourselves, making up rules, uh, and that in fact, looking for how things ought to be, like a, uh, an ethical conundrum or an ethical dilemma. We're trying to figure out how things ought to be, how to follow all of those rules, put them together. And what we're actually wanting to do instead of all of that is to get ourselves into a state of satisfaction in this present moment, to take the right effort that it takes to throw out unwholesome thoughts of conundrums and ethics and all of that and come into a nurturing kind of thought in the sense of everything's okay, everything is fine, what a nice deep breath this is, what a marvelous day this is, everything is okay. 
Mm. And because everything is okay, I can feel comfortable and secure. Comfortable and secure. That means I'm safe right now because there is no danger. I've actually opened my eyes, taken a look around, done some wisdom, done some investigation, and find out in this moment everything is okay. And because everything is okay, I can actually allow myself to feel okay. To feel comfortable, to feel secure. This is one's right effort, is to remove the feelings of insecurity and replace them with the feelings of security. And this is a practice that we need to do when we're in seclusion so that we can actually develop this as a skill, so that it's available as a skill when we need it the most. Hmm. To be able to feel comfortable and secure in this moment. Everything is all right right now. Everything is fine. Acceptance is a word for it, but even acceptance is um, coming out of, well, acceptance is coming out of toleration. Toleration is coming out of a cold war, and cold wars are coming out of hot wars. So acceptance means that I'll put up with it, but I don't like it. Well, that's mm. kind of toleration, but toleration adds the kicker is, but if you step out of, uh, out of step, we're either going into the hot war or a cold war immediately. No more toleration if you don't do what I expect out of you. Mm. And acceptance is, okay, I'll let you away with it this time. <laughs> but when we can go beyond acceptance into friendship, so that I can be friends with this present moment, everything is okay right now that I'm on friendly territory. In fact, I like what's happening. I can enjoy it. And so we begin to develop joy, the joy of everything's all right, everything is fine. I can begin to feel the way I want to feel rather than feel traumatized like I have been practicing to feel. Hmm. So, I, uh, so we're in the habit of feeling bad. We're in the habit of seeing danger when there is no danger. We could call that a false positive that the self-preservation instinct is designed to bring up danger. And it's kept us alive. 100,000 years ago, without the survival instinct, human race would have not survived. So we need that self-preservation instinct. We need the fear. Let's become friends with our fear so that we can manage it, tweak it a little bit, so that it only gives real positives rather than all these false positives. The false positive, well, what if the SS comes and I'm a Jew? And the real one is, there's no SS at the door. But so would you say that all, uh, like, it's, it's difficult to disagree wholeheartedly with what you said, but. Well, you don't have to disagree. In no, fact, if you no. keep putting everything I say through your filter, that's all you'll come up with that disagrees or not agrees. If you yeah. open what I have to say, you might, in fact, come across a, wow! I think, um, I think a, lot of the, a lot of what you're saying is already resonating on a very deep level. And... Uh, Maybe it is my fault to uh, get a little hung up on the uh, 
places where uh, it doesn't really jive yet, where I see maybe a, a dilemma. But uh, in, in general, the, the idea... How about I don't understand it yet? How about just recognize that there is doubt? Perhaps, but, uh, but sometimes I also feel that there is, well, I'm unsure. I could be, I could be wrong, but the thing is, I could also be right. From where I'm sitting, I feel like I'm right. Does it matter whether you're right or wrong? No, no, not really, a... Does it really no. matter whether you're right or wrong? Well, Wouldn't it be that, because uh, you can be right and feel bad about it, and you could feel, uh, be wrong and feel good about that. So right and wrong has really nothing to do with how you feel. But this we're not is talking a, about whether you're right or wrong, we're talking about your feelings. How do you feel? This, uh, this is a good point. The problem I run into, in, into here immediately is, what about, because this is true for me. Like, I, I could live in complete delusion, be super happy, and I could also be, like, a sociopath. Luckily, this isn't the thing for me, uh, but, like, as you far as I know, sociopaths deal with a lot of dukkha. Yeah? If you, if you don't believe me, one of the things that we can talk about that's just common knowledge now on the Internet and all over the place is, is that uh, Donald Trump has sociopathic tendencies. Oh, yeah, I mean, that guy, he's, uh, okay, so it would be an example. Wait a minute, is he free from suffering? Or is he being in the state of being dissatisfied big time? To my or, eyes, it looks, yeah, to my eyes, it looks like he is a very, very, very unhappy person. And I, okay. I think the world would be a lot happy, better if he was happier. I wish, I wish right. happiness. To so him. much for the sociopath. The sociopath is, in fact, quite miserable. He, uh, he just may not agree with you when you confront him with it. And, in fact, he might get really angry and really unhappy if you tell him that he's unhappy. Perhaps if the sociopath is one thing and that thing is Donald Trump. But uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, a, how do you deal with with other people in this way of thinking. This like, I'm, the I'm happy. The question is, if you could learn to deal with yourself, then you would be able to answer that question easier. Yeah, I feel like it is quite easy here, but it doesn't jive with what you're like. Well, I see a lot of confusion and all kinds of stuff on your face. You're not doing a whole lot of smiling and, and laughing and, and whatnot. <sighs> you still stay in the state of confusion about it. Oh, well, can I say, can I say exactly what I mean then? Because I think that's where the confusion is. Uh, I okay. feel like I've, I've, I've called you here. I feel like I need to be respectful, but I also feel like the, the biggest part of the confusion is basically that I'm trying to maybe not say all the things that I want to say. And uh, so, but you look like a happy guy. Uh, and <laughs> so, I hear that a lot. <laughs> well, I think you said earlier, like, uh, and putting aside, of course, I know this is not Nazi Germany. There are no SS officers at the door. 
but uh, but as putting aside that there that uh, I am making up all this as uh, as like delusional problems, but it is my intention to try to convey a certain point that uh, that I'm trying to make about okay, yeah. So one Please thing. Please make the point. All right, you said. You said which which uh, which team do you want to be on? Do you want to be the Jew or do you want to be, be the people uh, storming the beach? Well, actually, you you can't really. That was, that was just a rhetorical question, but because people generally don't have. In fact, I don't even remember giving you the choice, but just look at the difference because the ones yes. who were storming the beach have the intention to do something about it. Yes, exactly. But they're also. Uh, uh, putting their life on the line for other yes. people. That's very dangerous, isn't it? Storming the beach is pretty dangerous. Yes, and it has, and it, and you need to feel others suffering to make that uh, priority to put your life on the line like that. Okay. And that I can't like, and and with the there's, let's there's just be happy all the time. Yes. Okay, well, can't a happy person be compassionate? Which is more likely to be happy? Someone who's deathly afraid or someone who is happy? Yeah, here's, here's where I feel like it, it kind of breaks down because I don't think the people storming the beach were that happy. I don't think there was a lot of happy, compassionate, nope. mental stuff going on there. They were following there. orders. Their orders were to go storm the beach. Yes. And very few of them had that SS officer who was banging on the Jews' door in their mind when they were storming the beach. Well, exactly. This, that's where it gets foggier, this uh, way I of know, thinking of... I know, you've got a lot of fog in there, I can see it. But I'm quite happy with, uh, with paradoxes like that. They don't, they don't scare me. No, there's no paradox. There is no paradox. Okay, because I see it where... Uh, well, at, the paradoxes are at the mundane level. Yeah, yes. Okay, at the noble level, there are no paradoxes. And so at the mundane level, yeah, we uh, there's all this doubt that you have a lot of doubt about things. So let me talk about doubt for just a bit. There are actually three kinds of doubt. The first level of doubt is the doubt that people have when they recognize that there's a problem. An example is that you walk into the room and the room is a mess. Perhaps a bunch of stuff is piled on the floor. And the first thought that comes to mind is, who made this mess? Or another way of thinking about it, who can I blame for this mess? Or another way of thinking about it, who can I get to fix this mess? And underlying with that is, if I can get somebody else to fix this mess, then I won't have to. And ultimately, if I don't, if I can get somebody else to fix the mess, then who am I going to get to fix the mess? When I was a baby, I could get mommy to fix my mess. So maybe I need a new mommy. 
Maybe I need a therapist. Maybe I need a Christian preacher. Maybe I need a baptism. Maybe I need a government. But I need something to help me fix this mess. This is the first level of doubt. Who can we get to fix the mess? When we get enough into the uh, into the uh, the teaching of the Buddha, we get past that first noble truth of this mess. And who can I get to clean it up? We get to the second noble truth, and we recognize that this mess was caused by one's own greed, one's own ill will, and one's own ignorance, which means that only oneself can clean up their own mess. So that's getting over the first level of doubt, is who can I get to clean up the mess? The answer is nobody's going to clean it up. It's got to be cleaned up right here. So the next level of doubt is, am I up to the task? And this is the job of the meditator. And most people don't think that they're up to the task. That in fact, trying to solve uh, moral dilemmas is a way of looking at, I'm not up to the task. If you have the, uh, the point of view, I can handle that, then let's wait until those moral dilemmas happen and then I'll take care of it. So, um, a lot of the Anapanasati practice, a lot of the Eightfold Noble Path is the eradication of this doubt about whether I can do it or not. Can I, in fact, clean out my mind right now? Can I come out of my misery right now? Can I gladden the mind right now? Can I be happy right now? Is basically the question that we need to uh, recognize that we've been asking all along. We've been asking, how can I get out of this mess? Or who can I get me to get out of this mess? Once we have a decent practice going, then that eradication of the doubt comes from confidence. What is that confidence? The confidence that I can get myself out of doubt over and over and over again. And as soon as the doubt or any other bad feeling or any job that can be done or any other ordinary or unwholesome thought, I can throw that out and come back to a good state of mind and feel really good. After I do that enough times, then I begin to develop the attitude that I can do this anytime I want to. If I can, if I can feel good now, I can feel good next time. If I can feel now and I just did feel good, I can feel good again. I can keep reminding myself that I can feel good. And that's the second doubt. In other words, what we're talking about is, is that we develop the attitude of can do, a winner's attitude. Along with that comes now the next point of doubt, and that is, is that do I have everything I need to do it? And that's where the Buddhist teaching comes in. And that is, is that when we recognize that this Eightfold Noble Path is in fact got all of the features and tools that I need, so that if I have knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path, because I, most people are, are following a path that is not the noble path. They're following whatever path that they heard about or whatever like that. So when we recognize that this noble path, in fact, will give me, if I practice it correctly, the skills that I need to come out of doubt, then I come out of all three. The doubt of who can I get to do this, the doubt of I can do this, and the doubt of I've got the tools 
the knowledge and the skills to do it. And what I'm, what is the only job that I've got to do? Stop having jobs to do. Stop having these jobs to do. What jobs? The ones I think up for myself to do. Oh. Like I could think up a job to do of creating a, 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 a moral dilemma that needs to be solved. Or I could create a, a, like how to get that computer rebooted or whatever the task is. Because we can actually reboot a computer without feeling bad, but most of the time when the computer crashes, we have a, a moment of bad feeling. All right. So say that one has gotten oneself in a in a place where um, uh, where I have a pregnant girlfriend, and I think that that's going to be uh, a job, not the pregnant girlfriend, but the child that comes out of it. Uh, and I feel like even as uh, even though I so I you've jumped I, back into the future again. What? You just jumped back into the future. Say I've got a pregnant girl. Yes. And the girl's going to have a baby. That's off into the future. Yeah. But, but you, do you get yourself into feeling good right now instead of having to say, wait a minute, if I feel good now, something shit's going to happen and then I won't feel good. The answer is stop creating shit to think about and just be happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have children? <laughs> yes. Yes. Got an eight-year-old here. Uh, okay, that makes uh, gives uh, gives it more gravita for sure. But um, yeah, no, uh, I'm just uh, right. We have I, to I, get I redirected out of the future, yeah. trying to solve problems that don't exist. Mm. At the end of the present moment, where you recognize right now there's no problem. It needs to be solved. But you've just gotten yourself into the habit of solving problems, solving problems, solving problems, and I'm inviting you to wake up to that and recognize right now you don't have to problem solve. Right now, you can just be happy. I agree. I feel, I feel quite happy right now. But, um, well, it's a skill to be developed. Yes, isn't it? But speaking of that, like, uh, I have a more uh, practice-based questions now that we've had a long, good fight about moral conundrums. Uh, but, uh, so I... <laughs> but so I have a... I sit for about two hours every day. And I follow the breath, and that's pretty much what I do. I've, uh, would you, basically, I guess what I'm asking is, how, how much concentration do you need, in your opinion? Do you? Oh, that rabbit hole. Okay. There is. The way that the word concentration is used in Buddhism is wrong thinking. There is no concentration in Buddhism at all. 
what there is is samati. And samati means to gather the things together. Gather the ingredients. If you're going to bake a cake, you need to have all the ingredients to bake the cake. You can't say, oh, I'm going to start baking the cake, and all of a sudden I recognize I don't have any flour, now I've got to go to the store. Well, now you're not baking a cake anymore, now you're going to the store. But if you're actually going to bake a cake, you've got to have all the ingredients to bake the cake. Okay, this is samati. What we need to bake our cake is to get all the ingredients together. Okay, that's an important point. You don't need any concentration at all. What you need is all of the factors that are gathered together. And if you can sustain having those factors together, then some people could call that concentration or focus or staying focused or being in the vicinity, but when we use the word concentration, almost always people get into straining, working, uh, taking an effort. Hmm. And the point is, is that one's right effort is merely to put wholesome thoughts in the mind and to have wholesome views. This is very clear in the suttas. One's right effort is not to concentrate. One's right effort is to remove the unwholesome thoughts from the mind and put in wholesome thoughts in the mind. No concentrated needed. But what you do need is to remember to do that. You need sati. You also need right view in the sense of right view is to keep looking, keep investigating. When you're in, when you remember and have sati and wake up, then the first thing we do is we investigate. What do we investigate? Well, we investigate all of the Satipatthana, but in the beginning, we investigate what's in the mind. If what's in the mind is unwholesome, then we take the right effort to throw that unwholesome out. And when we get skillful at doing that, we know we can do it, and therefore we begin to develop right attitude. The attitude is, I can do this. I can clean the mind out and come to this present moment the way things really are, rather than the way things either I want them to be or I'm afraid they might be or it used to be like this or whatever and just be here with what really is. So, uh, this takes right effort. The right effort is, is to remove from the mind unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of SS, thoughts of Jews, thoughts of uh, uh, conundrums, and to just be in this present moment. Everything in this present moment is just okay. And that in this present moment, we have the senses. And so we can be here with the body, and we can watch the breathing. We're here with the feelings, and we can monitor the feelings. We're here with the thoughts, and we can guide the thoughts and have the kind of thoughts that we want to. And if we have the kind of thoughts that we want to, then those kind of thoughts will be the kind of thoughts that generate good feelings. It's the kind of thoughts that we have that we do not want to have, but we have them anyway because we're in the habit of them, is what gets us into unwholesome feeling states like sadness, anger, grief, worry, um, anxiety. And when we have wholesome thoughts, we can have thoughts of success, satisfaction, comfort, security, safety. And so we begin to generate those kind of feelings by having those kind of thoughts. 
in the process of that, the body becomes relaxed. Because it's not all tensed up and everything from all of that worrying that we were doing, and we feel good, and so we relax. The body relaxes, and the breath relaxes, so that we can begin to, um, and this is one thing that's not exactly in, this, in that particular sutta about one's right effort of cleaning out the mind and taking out unwholesome thoughts and putting wholesome thoughts in. But in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about the breath. Mindfully, one breathes in long, and mindfully, one breathes out long, which means now we have to take the effort to make sure that our breathing is long. Long in-breath and long out-breath, because that long in-breath and long out-breath actually nourishes the body. To where short breathing that we normally do is just substantial. It only substantiates but it is not, um, let us say, rich. So we want to start to having an easygoing, rich breath. A lot of students say, well, I, I, I did the long breath, but it was too much work. Well, that's not right effort. Working too hard at it is not right effort. That we want to have a nice, long, easy in-breath and a nice, long, easy out-breath aside. That we actually want to take that out-breath to remove the carbon dioxide and the stuff that was in the blood that can be removed by the lungs. And so we breathe that out. And then we take in a long, deep in-breath. And by doing that, we begin to oxygenate the body more than it used to be. And we start to become vibrantly alive, awake, alert. And so our breathing, if we can learn to control the breathing with the mind, then that is actually a skill developing in the mind, the skill of being able to control the breath. But actually the controlling of the breath is not really controlling the breath, it's controlling the mind to control the breath. And that we want to learn to sustain that, or when we lose it, to remember and come back and start again. Never mind, start again. That's what Kawanka says over and over. Never mind, start again. But it's a very nurturing thing, as opposed to most people when they say never mind, you say, never mind, start again. Okay, or worse than that, oh, this is too much. Oh, meditation is so hard. Oh, monkey mind, monkey mind. Okay, we'll see, we're not actually nourishing ourselves there, we're still being very critical. So we actually have to remember to change that critical thinking into nurturing thinking. Hmm. You have to remember to take the mind off of uh, unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in. To take the mind out of criticism into nurturing. So that you nurture yourself. Everything is okay. Wow, what a nice moment. Wow, this is a good breath. I really like this breath. This begins to collect the mind together because that um, moral dilemma kind of thinking keeps the mind scattered. Is it this? Is it that? What about this? What about that? And all kinds of stuff that we don't really have to do. We can just simply be here relaxed. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. And so this is a skill to be developed. And if you can develop that skill very well, then you can handle it when the cop comes. And when he's uh, walking up to the car 
You can tell yourself, everything's okay. Everything's fine. I can handle this. No worries. No problems. And so this is the practice. The practice is to getting ourselves into a good state without the world so that we can get the skills going so that we can handle the world with grace and aplomb. That we can actually deal with the world in compassion and joy and metta rather than in competition or in danger. And all of this is mental attitude. It's all about can you change your attitude? The attitude of I got to fix this into the attitude of it's not broken. So this is how we practice. This is the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right sati, right effort, leading eventually to right attitude. And we do that, right effort, by throwing out unwholesome thoughts and bringing in wholesome thoughts. And we practice that over and over again. And as we practice it, we get good at it. And when we get good at it, we know we're good at it. Then we think, I can handle anything. If I can handle this moment, I can handle anything. So that's the attitude that we're developing. This is all anapanasati. Gladdening the mind is that one's right effort, is to take the mind out of unwholesome and brighten it, gladden it. Rather than inspecting dukkha, we're going to see it immediately and throw it out. We don't have to inspect dukkha. We just see it enough to see that it is dukkha. Or to see it as dangerous. And once we see it as dangerous, we can get rid of it immediately. Out you go. I don't need you. The Buddha had the phrase, aha, I see you, Myra. That's it. To see those unwholesome thoughts. And that aha is joy. Aha, I see you, Mara. And so we've immediately changed our attitude from suffering from those thoughts that I had into, I see that, I see that stuff. And by seeing it, we can throw it right out. In fact, you just did throw it out. When you said, aha, I see you, Mara, the Mara's already out. And now what's in the mind? Aha, I see you. That's what's in the mind. And then perhaps the next mind moment, the thought will be, wow, what a relief. I don't have to think about that right now. I can be here happy and secure. Then we can have thoughts, everything is okay, everything is fine, no worries, everything's going to be all right, everything's fine, and we can get ourselves back into a state of relaxation, a state of peace. That peace will grow as your skills grow so that your joy becomes really big because it's a skill to be developed. Happiness is a skill to be developed rather than something to be purchased. Yes. And so this is how we develop it, by throwing unwholesome, unhappy thoughts out of the mind as soon as they occur. It's just 
not happy, out. Police, not happy thought, out. Aha, I see you, Mr. Fear, out. Hmm. And then we take a deep breath. Ah, isn't it nice to be relaxed and comfortable and no problems, no worries? Because the only worries, the only problems you ever had anywhere were things that you thought of. And if you stop thinking up problems, you don't have any. Survive, hmm. survive, everything's okay. Everything's all right. Yes. And when we're in that state, you're, you're, you're seeing it perfect. You don't want anything. You're not thinking about robbing the bank or calling your lawyer or suing that dude or sneaking into his house and taking what he stole from you or killing SS in their tracks. You don't have to think any about that stuff. Everything's already okay. But can't you still think about helping other people? When it's time to help other people when they need help, if you've got the skills, you can do that. Sitting and thinking about helping other people is just problem solving. So when you get to them, you'll be problem solving rather than compassionate. Here's an example of compassion. Somebody just fell overboard. They're drowning at sea. They don't swim. The normal, ordinary person who doesn't also swim has enough compassion to say, oh, I've got to save that guy from drowning. The next thing they know, they've jumped into the water with them, and now there's two of them out there that can't swim. And they're having a pity party. I can see two women on the couch talking about whatever one of them's having the trouble with, and now both of them feel bad. And they call that compassion. But in fact, they go around with that. If somebody has just lost someone, uh, they want to communicate and commune with someone else who has done the same thing. So is it, oh, you've just lost your daughter. Oh, well, I just lost my son last month. And immediately, they're friends in pity party. That's not compassion. Real compassion would be to do an investigation, a noble um, investigation to find out how can I help that person this actually drowning. Perhaps, in fact, there's a life raft with a, with a rope on it 
laying around here someplace. Let me get that and throw that out there. That I do not have to jump into the ocean that that other person is drowning in. I do not have to join their pity party. But that, here's the thing though, that lifeboat, that little thing, that must have been put there by someone who worried that this sort of thing might happen. Well, okay, so there it is. No, isn't it kind of just, no, no. But isn't it a good thing to put it there? You're worried about a life raft. And I'm talking about a pity party. So yeah. in this regard, as someone who needs compassion because they're having a pity party, there's no reason for you to join them in their pity party that you can throw them a life raft that could be all in just words. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I see. And so in that regard, that means that someone who, who got that life raft had been practicing out upon Asati correctly so that he had some joy to throw out there. Yes. <clears throat> and so that's what Medita really is all about. Medita is sympathetic vibration. You're talking about dealing with the world. And this is something that many beginner students have. But the real answer is, is that if you can't handle your own mind in seclusion, how do you ever hope to have, uh, ever hope to, to fix the, the world in the ways that you are encountering it? If okay. you can't get your own mind out of the crap, then the most likely happen is that when you see someone else in a bunch of crap, you're going to jump right into that crap with them. Yeah. Uh, although I really do see myself as a beginning student, but... I also see myself as quite happy and happily sitting in meditation. And meditation is feeling great. The present moment is uh, salient and nice. Yeah, often, no, I mean, there's, you, there's. I've seen you in that state in this conversation, but you're not in there now. It's not far away, though. It's like. Okay, okay access then. Yeah, I can, I can feel, I can feel into it. Like I can easily okay, get to how the ordinary mind is. Is that when someone else is in suffering, when someone else is having a pity party, the normal thing for most people to do is to jump in and have that pity party with them, and they claim that that's compassion. Yeah, this is not what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't, I don't want that. I don't think that's a good idea. Okay. But it is a good idea to give them something that can help them come out of their uh, their pity party if you've got the right tools to do that, if you've got the right skills. And that's what the practice of Anapanasati is, is to stop um, manufacturing problems that need to be solved and to recognize there's no problems right now. Everything is good. Then you can be happy because everything is set up for the happiness. There's nothing to, there, no dukkha to cause you to be unhappy. So you can dwell in that third noble truth. Wow, this is so nice. Everything is okay. And if you're getting really good at that, then you can go out and have that state of mind while you're dealing with the world.
But you got to have yes. it. And um, one of the ways that I talk about it, that, that um, if you're going to spread joy, you can't do it with a teaspoon. And yet most people only have a teaspoon. You need a shovel, a backhoe of joy, a backhoe full of joy. So you can just dump it on. Because if you give them a tiny little teaspoon of joy, that won't be enough to get them out of their pity party. Which means you might have to be persistent. Now, generally what happens is, is that the beginning meditator gets worn down by others. An example would be that a dad is, um, he, he hates Donald Trump, but he still watches Fox News anyway. And then he gets himself all upset. And son, the meditator comes in, and dad's all upset and, and angry at Fox News and Donald Trump and everything like that, and the and the uh, student meditator son tries to talk his dad out of feeling bad, but hmm. dad's persistent in feeling really bad, and so son has played his game, he's shot his watt, and he's got nothing to do but to sulk off for failure because he wasn't able to get his dad out of his uh, the dad's pity party. Hmm. He didn't have enough joy. He wasn't able to keep staying there with the dad, with his joy. Keep giving joy. Somebody keeps giving you misery. You keep giving them joy. You keep giving them joy. And pretty soon, your frequency, the note that you're playing in joy, will eventually catch on. That you can get other people to smile. Yes. You can do it. You can get them out of their pity party if you've got that smile if you've got the joy. So the question is, can you get enough joy in your meditation practice so that you can spread joy to those people who are in fact miserable? Because you're gonna find a whole world of miserable people. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Very true. But like, uh, I, when, you, when you say this now, I think, uh, yes, yes. I think I, can, I think I have a lot of joy to give and I rarely feel I mean it has happened but I rarely feel that uh, other people's uh, mis misery rubs off on me a lot I feel like I can see it ah, see you're not immune to it you you see their unhappiness and you pick it up uh, when they're yeah. drowning in the water you jump in too no I think I think what I've was trying to say is that even though I sometimes this doesn't really feel like it's in my life like a like a problem. I don't get miserable by being around miserable people. This I well, feel quite okay. I feel quite okay with that. Practice is working for you. That's I think so. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But is it like, yeah? So what should I what should I do then? <laughs> take a deep breath and enjoy the moment. Yes. Take, take their misery out of your mind and supplant mm. it with joy. Yes. Take take their unwholesomeness out of your mind and put your own wholesomeness back in, over and mm. over and over. Again. Mm. That is what I will continue doing. 
over and over and over and over again. Until Thank you. Happy. Well, let's say that this has been a productive first talk, then. I would say so, too. And so I invite you to call again so that you can continue on with this. Thank you. Thank you. I see that you recorded this call. Is it? Is have I understood now, it correctly? If that yeah, means we that about I, before I set it up, that yeah. I always invite the student to recuse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No problem with that. I was just wondering if uh, is that recording also available for me? I'm not used to yes, using Skype. Yes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. As soon as the Skype call is on over, as soon as they process it, about sixty seconds or a couple of minutes, depending upon how long the file is. It'll pop up to you, available to you, in Skype for download or watching directly in Skype. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for that as well. And um, thank you so much for taking the time for this. Okay. Well, when are you going to call again? When the time is right. I'm not going to plan it. It just leads to suffering. So um, I'm doing a, um, a retreat in about a week and then i'll that would maybe be uh might want to call before you go to that retreat yes that is uh, that's what i thought okay. would be a good idea Great. all right well i'll see you before you go for that retreat nice all to right. meet you nice to meet I've you too this. this has been a great call i've watched you smile Yes, <laughs> likewise. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. <laughs> All, All right. right. Have a good one. Ciao.